You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, fellow storytellers, and welcome to this edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. In this episode, we're going to talk to a man whose real life has been closer to most people's wildest dreams. He likes being known as the grandson of Roy Hoffines, the man who created the Astrodome and brought down racial barriers in Houston. But we are nearing the day when the great Roy Hoffines will become remembered as the grandfather of Den Man. That's why this episode will be devoted to legacies, the one we inherit and the one we eventually leave behind. Den, I'm so honored to have you on my show. Thank you for being here. Melvin, I'm grateful for the time and that wonderful introduction. It um, it speaks a lot to where I am in this in this great journey that 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 we're on. And I say we, you and I, you know, we got connected through baseball and got to know each other through social media and the power of that. And I can say that my grandfather would have been awestruck by sort of the, I don't know, the serendipitous nature of how that, that is occurring in our time. And he would look at the positive aspects of it and wouldn't dwell so much on um, all of the pitfalls and, and troubles. He would laugh about it and he would, he would make a face about it, but he would, he would understand that it's a, it's an avenue for collaboration like no other. So, you know, we're, we're living, breathing examples of that. And, uh, and I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you. So Den Man is co-founder at Players Holdings, and he's the CEO of GoatNet, a social streaming and IP development platform power, powered by communities, proprietary technology, content curation, and highly relevant strategic relationships. So mm-hmm. can you tell us what all that means? You know, there were a lot of a lot of buzzwords in there. If it were a drinking game, you know, people would be in some trouble already. Uh, They'd be buzzed. I've got to clean, I've got to clean that up. It, it's uh, you know, we we have um, we've had this great journey in uh, my personally spent my life in baseball and spent my life in 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 sports, spent my life in media, and this converges a lot of really interesting things in my life. Where I was born to do this job, so I created it. Uh, it was something that. Um, my grandfather built the Astrodome, and very much this is the, an, an expansion of that combined with the experiences that I had at Major League Baseball from the, the very beginning of something called MLB Advanced Media, where we created MLB.com, and, and we created the MLB app, and we created MLB.tv, and, and we made a whole lot of progress in a, in a rather short amount of time, less than two decades, did some things that were very groundbreaking in, uh, in the industry. And as an extension of that, we took influence in baseball with the teams themselves and did something to create a really powerful enterprise. And in that time, you know, what was born was this influencer marketing, call it a revolution. Um, and it was just, it's just so profoundly powerful, the blend of, of people and the influence that they have and how it exceeds that of what any team or league could ever have. And so anyone who could come in and start to make sense out of the power of people and the stories that they have to tell and the collective influence they have around the communities that they are passionate about and to which they're attached 
you know, would, would be kind of the next iteration of what I would say if YouTube and LinkedIn got together in a bar and, and somehow created an offspring that, uh, that this would be a big part of where that would go. And, you know, as I showed you a little bit, the power of AI, just in when we generated your, uh, your avatars using a, a, a third party app, which is one of the best and a couple of others where I do put a little secret sauce on it. Um, the power of bringing people into this, this, uh, opportunity you know this platform is uh, is really fun and you know we went and brought on board a bunch of ball players aspiring ball players out at a summer summer program out in utah and you know the kids were, were pretty fired up about the opportunity to to get onto a platform that would help them demonstrate the power of their of their brand of who they are of what they're about of how they tick of where they come from because as i say to all of these athletes that i talk to and not only athletes but just influencers so we called it goatnet for a reason to really go with the goat of greatness and to say that everyone has kind of a blindside story in them and everybody has a a a greatest version of themselves and how do they tap into that how do they begin to explain where they come from how they tick how do they actually own their even their mistakes and sort of own their 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 legacies because the legacies are complicated. Uh, there are legacies that are completely imperfect, and it's true of everyone. And so I think that um, you know what we are doing is providing people what I like to call filtered intelligence, which gives them a real chance to take a deeper breath in what they create. So I love short form social media. I think it's wonderful. I think it's it's entertaining. I think it's engaging. I think it leads to something else. And I believe what it leads to is what we're doing, which is like what you're doing with this podcast. You're out here, you're telling stories in a, in a more robust way, in a way that's going to resonate with a lot of people in a way that hopefully you'll reach a terrific audience. And we're trying to go a step beyond that and just help people, you know, have ownership of what those avenues are that are associated um, with the content they create. So how do I how do I make money off telling these stories or how do I build build a business off telling these stories? How do I connect with others who might help me do this in a better way? Because if we all sort of go solo, um, we're all creating solo albums out there. I'm not sure there's enough people to fill that dance hall. Um, so, you know, it's really important. You look at the, the power of what a sports league is, for example, and the idea that goes into that. And the power that comes with that, you have people getting together collectively to pull their influence and to, to bring their power into the mix and to create something of value. And that's the thing that I think that a lot of folks, either in entertainment or sports or what I call purpose, don't always fully embrace, which is if we get together and we have a band of others that can help us do something that's profoundly awesome and productive then it's going to be that much better for the people who come behind us that I, I like to sort of talk about, you know, is the, is the company you have or the enterprise that you're taking on, is it, does it survive if you get hit by a bus tomorrow? And, you know, it's a morbid thought, but the reality is a lot of people are just out there going solo and haven't really put in the, the, I don't know, the thoughtfulness and the effort that to, to embrace the fact that life is a team sport. And if you embrace the life as a team sport, you can, you can, you know, win some rings and trophies. And that's what we're about is building out GoatNet in a way that helps people pull together communities. And our first two communities are connected around um, baseball and softball because I have so much, such a, such a deep passion for that. And also around veterans and veterans and the stories that they have 
and veterans in a very nonpartisan way. So not making this a thing that's a platform for a bunch of extremist points of view, but rather really leaning into the powerful stories of people who have um, veteran and first responder backgrounds and then bringing them together yeah. in, uh, in sporting events and, and sporting competitions. So it is so fun. We're having a great time. We have met some of the most amazing people and entertainers are sort of right there at the bit. In fact, this trip that I'm on right now, I uh, have the pleasure of meeting with a highly influential entertainer. You might have seen recently that I bumped into Dion Warwick in a uh, in an airport, and it was right. Yes, after I did I, see that on social media. Yeah, exactly. And I I had gone to see Taylor Swift the night before. And, you know, just when you're all giddy about <laughs> seeing this amazing you know show that that Taylor Swift put on, and then I'm like in the presence of this royalty, you know, life changing royalty, literally life saving royalty. Uh, I think I called her a philanthropist, and she's so much more than that. She's a humanitarian. And to meet this great humanitarian sitting alone in the Kansas City airport um, was was magical. And, you know, she is also the type of person I told her, I said, I watched your documentary with my mom. And she and my mom were friends from back in the day at the Astrodome. And she remembered my mom. She lit up. And I hadn't even said my mom's name yet. I just said, I'm the grandson of Roy Hoffines, which I tend to say, as you know. And she said, and she said, how is Deanie? How is Deanie? And so this is, a, you know, this is a sharp lady with oh, a great wow. memory and great friendship. And, you know, so it was just, it lifted my mom up to hear that anecdote. But, you know, this is really about, you know, seeing Dionne Warwick and having her tell her life story and having people understand while they're on the journey, how can I make my story as great and powerful and influential and, and, um, and successful as Dionne Warwick's? So that's, that's incredible. That's great. And I did see that on Twitter and, and that's, that's pretty awesome. So I've got some questions for you about the early part of your life. We'll start out there. So we'll start at the beginning. So as a child, I understand you turned down a chance to be an extra in the movie, the bad news bears, because you thought you were too cool. What other foolish decisions have you made in your life? Oh, wow. Well, wait a second. I mean, I still haven't gotten over that one. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I had, uh, I don't, I'm not a person who's, is, is, uh, is big on regret because as I spoke about, you know, we have potholes and we have, people are held to such a high, such a ridiculous standard that it's not fair and, and regret is not productive. And so I tend to look at it and say that bad news bears moment is like, it's like, it is the entire top five of my, of my regrets. Um, you know, I, you, cause I, I couldn't keep my parents together. I'm now I'm thinking back childhood. You're like, okay, what, what are, what are some regrets? Well, I couldn't have kept my parents together. It wasn't, that really wasn't my job. And I really didn't have a say in that. And they probably shouldn't have been together, but thank God I, I was born. Um, let's see, we moved to California. No real big regrets there. I moved from California to Texas. I had this wherewithal to recognize that California um, wasn't the, as the Beverly Hillbilly song, I think says California. Oh no, no. It was New York. It was Green Acres. Now I'm thinking of Green Acres, whatever. New York is where you're supposed to be or something like that. And, um, or the country where you're supposed to be, but California was not the place to be. At least once I got to my uh, ninth grade, my high school years. Uh, I wasn't the most productive environment and I didn't know my dad very well. So I went to do that. Don't regret that. So I hate to answer your question with like a lot of non-regrets and act like that, I'm the first room. I will say this. I, I had, uh, I played basketball at Paul Allen's house and this is during early part of my career. 
and I'd worked at newspapers, spent about 10 years in newspapers. And, but in the middle of those 10 years, I was in Houston and the paper shut down and it was really, you know, if I had, I could have a regret about, first of all, going to that paper, but Houston was my hometown. My grandfather had been the mayor. My uncle had been the mayor. And my granddad, I think, was rolling over his grave that I'm like the sports editor, sports editor of the Houston Post and thinking that that's some kind of great accomplishment. I'm 28 years old, sports editor of the Post. But the Post shuts down only 10 months after I got there. And Dean Singleton had, had already negotiated the deal to sell the paper before I even got there. So that, that, was, that was one of the things that soured me on the newspaper business. And so if I regret anything, probably a couple of things. One is I didn't really... Maybe I didn't have to go in the newspaper business to learn all the things I did. Um, however, it was really cool to start at the bottom of something like that and to literally make $6 an hour and to do it $6 an hour for, you know, for 40 hours a week and then to actually take a pay cut to go get a job at a bigger place after I became a sports editor from become from being a part-time, what they call an agate clerk. Uh, so I really climbed that mountain. It took, you know, it took a while to, to get wherever. And, and, uh, but I got to Houston's at the post, it shut down. And when it shut down, um, I spent most of my energy on helping my staff figure out where they were going to land. I really wasn't worried about me. And so I'm not saying I regret that because that was absolutely the right thing to do. And I wound up getting like six job opportunities out of that. And I sort of regret all five that I didn't take because they were all really cool. And it's just such a silly brag to act like I was just, you know, in demand, I'm 29 years old, whatever, and I've got this chance to either go to the Chicago Sun-Times or to go to the New York Daily News or to go to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or go to the Philadelphia Inquirer or go to a place called Starwave, which brings me to playing basketball at Paul Allen's house. So I'm playing basketball at Paul Allen's house because Jeff Reese, who's running Starwave, which is basically the early ESPN.com. So it was called ESPN Net Sports Zone. And Paul Allen had this company, Starwave, that was enabling ESPN to create their, their web presence. So I had a chance to go to ESPN that early in my life uh, in 1996, which was really early for them and really early for, for you know putting a flag in that planet. And so if there's a regret, it's probably that I didn't just jump and go do that. But, you know, I, it's hard to argue with what happened afterward for me is that instead I went to Atlanta the Braves won the World Series. The Olympics were there. Um, it was a great experience. Made a lot of great friend, additional friends. I wound up um, still having a house in Cinco Ranch in Katy, which I had bought when I became sports editor of the Houston Post. The house was on the market for 13 months, and I was going to lose about twenty or $25,000. And as a person in media, as you can relate to this, that felt like a mountain of money. Uh, I was just like, wow, how am I going to deal with this $25,000 debt? I've been this, this kid who's taken these jobs for like paltry raises that barely covered cost of living increases. And I was kind of in a panic and, and I got this, this offer in Kansas city and met some great people there and, you know, had a good run there for about five years, was in the sports department, then was in the newsroom and had, you know, we'd won a lot of awards. We turned some heads had done some exciting things and, you know, just, again, a really interesting collection of people who predated me and also that I brought in. And there's still a great legacy for what we did in Kansas City. So I wound up going there, and that's where I got the call about the job at MLB, where they were trying to form this thing called MLB Advanced Media. They didn't know who was going to lead it. And interestingly enough, out of all of the, the, the weeding that they did to determine who should get that job, they interviewed a bunch of people, obviously, and I think I went to New York three times, 
met with everybody involved, Commissioner Selig, Bob Dupay, uh, Bob Bowman, and uh, survived the process and impressed in the process and, and, and landed the gig. And I did something pretty great at MLB, and I'm, I'm very proud of what, of what we accomplished. And proud is not even the right word. I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited by what we accomplished. And, but I think people should understand better what they're capable of. And so my regret probably is underestimating my own value, underestimating what I could become. And I think it's really hard in an age of seeing so much on screen. And even as a kid, look, he's a kid of the 1960s. We saw a lot of life on screen that other people didn't. And so we saw a lot of things on TV. We've been we've we've lived through this phenomenal time where cable came on and where, you know, we went from three channels to four to to forty. And to have forty channels to choose from and, and a thing called a cable box and all of this stuff starting to happen that I think you have kind of a, this out of body notion that the thing that's happening on a screen is not you. It's not for you. It's not it's not something you can do. And what's special about people who break through are the ones who say, that's kind of like the Red Sox finally breaking the curse and winning the World Series. Like, why not us? So why not me is something more people should do and should say to themselves and should understand that the capability that they have to touch people, to tell stories, to build, to believe in themselves, to bet on themselves and to get qualified so they're taken seriously. So I think had I taken school more seriously, um, you know, it was a little bit weird. I mean, single parent mom in, in California and, and sure we live in a really nice neighborhood and stuff, but we weren't like loaded and, and, you know, we still, um, just were trying to get through, trying to get by and trying to have fun and trying to play sports and too cool to go be in a movie that I should have, should have obviously, obviously <laughs> done. But I, that's the, the regret I have, thank, frankly, is that I just didn't take life seriously enough, I think at an early enough age and to, to, um, you know, maybe start accomplishing even more sooner. Um, and I'm not, I'm just, you know, you don't need even too much of a hurry, but you can accomplish a lot and to make sure that you, that you're, that you're qualified and that you have the material to get into your dream school. And you don't just kind of make that, like I went to Baylor and Baylor was great and I enjoyed it. And, um, but it was, yeah, I went there because it was a hundred miles from home. It was relatively close. My dad, you know, it was far enough, but close enough. One of those things thought I could still play baseball and whatnot, but I think had I started to take it more seriously, this whole notion of the creativity that I have and the capability that I have and what I could go do with that, there was much more in front of me. Um, so I had to really wind my way around after those 10 years in newspapers to figure out, oh, I got ground to make up. How am I going to make up that ground? And what am I going to go do to make it happen? So I, I wish I had started everything sooner, but I, I you know, can't say enough how wonderful it's all turned out it's just the older you get the more it's like mm, how much time where is that where's that finish line to the unknown you know what is that and how much more time do i have to do something magnificent and so you know now i'm doing everything to try to stay young and and to keep the energy and and make these things happen so that so that the mlb chapter isn't like the isn't like closure in the culmination it was just a springboard to something even more um even more phenomenal Talk about the legacy a little bit. Talk about your grandfather and then talk about the idea, the concept of legacy and owning your story. So I mentioned earlier about your grandfather helping bring down um, racial barriers in Houston. It seems to me like his long-term legacy in Houston is that that city is now the most diverse city in the country. And according to the latest census data, 
there are 145 languages spoken in Houston homes. I don't know if you're aware of that. And I know that Mr. Hoffines was a visionary, but do you think even he could have imagined what Houston would become? Gosh, I mean, I would not dare say that he couldn't. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a mind-boggling number, but also a testament to the greatness of of my hometown. Um, and what's not as well known and publicized, I think, about it. And my grandfather, you know, you think about, you know, what he did and kind of this notion of the great society, you know, the influence he had on, on, on LBJ and what that really meant. Houston was a microcosm of that and Houston reflected that. And I cannot um, express enough the courage and the honor and the, and, and, and the uh, fortitude and the, I don't give a damn approach he had to making things happen and to righting wrongs. And I think part of that happened with him. He, he was, he had a domineering mother. He was an only child. They didn't have money. And uh, he witnessed some things that were unpleasant and he witnessed some things that were just, just incorrect. He was wired differently. Um, you know, his, uh, his dad passed away when he was just a teenager before, before he had, you know, done the things that he went to, went on to do. Uh, and that loss was impactful, extremely impactful for him. And I think he would look and say, I like to think that we laid the foundation and I set some of the example for why it is the way it is. I mean, Houston always had, you know, there's always been people who don't get along and there were at that time and there are people opposed to his, his, uh, his approach, his inclusiveness. Um, and he had to be pushed a little bit on the inclusiveness. It wasn't just him, you know, it was Mr. Meese and it was some other people, powerful people um, in communities of color and communities of, of, of languages that were not English. And, you know, so and he came from a, he came from a, a German descent and his, his wife um, that he met at U of H, she um, was of Greek descent and so he was always a really, you know, open-minded and smart, inclusive person. I mean, the picture behind you of, of, of Jackie Robinson is sort of emblematic a little bit of, of, of how he approached um, the Astrodome and, and, and really, the, really governing in the city, that he wasn't going to wait for permission from people who were going to maybe reject, resist, or prevent progress. So he was going to make sure that that occurred. And Houston is this, you know... It's a spaghetti bowl, you know, it's not just a melting pot. It's a spaghetti bowl of freeways and commercial buildings next to private residences. And that was all by design. That was all so that, so that you would have this intermingling in the town, in the city, in the county, um, and the surrounding areas that were unprecedented. I say unprecedented, but the reality is you go into New York, you know, there's a townhouse on top of a bodega. And there's a high rise next to expensive condominiums. And so, you know, it was very much a New York ain't all that. And Houston can be at least all that. And maybe in our own way, uh, you know, we can just sort of be the, the Manhattan of the South. And I think there was some some piece of that that was, you know, in his mind. I mean, think, again, he was a guy who went and got the circus because he wanted content for the Astrodome and, you know, believed in the variety of content. He also believed in, I'll tell you one thing that's, that's um, maybe not probably spoken about enough in the symbolism of the cushion chairs in the Astrodome. 
There were cushion chairs in the Astrodome at every level so that everybody could sit in a cushion chair. It wasn't because there were going to be classes of people who would get a cushion chair and there would be classes of people who couldn't get a cushion chair. Everybody got a cushion chair. And it sounds simple enough today, but back then it meant something. And it meant something, uh, you know, with him. I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to talk about him without tearing up, Melvin, uh, because uh, he was, you know, somebody who, who set such a great example. And I was so lucky, um, just so amazingly fortunate to have him as a role model and to, and to have his legacy as something that I could, I could embrace and that I could, I could do my best to honor. That's awesome. And I, I appreciate that legacy too. My family has been in Houston for several generations and, and my dad in particular benefited from some of the things that your grandfather did to make the city more inclusive. He desegregated the, the city before any, probably 10 years before any other Southern city was desegregated. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, there's that dramatic, you know, um, recollection and retelling of, of him just taking down signs. I mean, literally with his bare hands going and taking down signs that said whites only and doing that in public buildings, doing it at libraries, doing it at, at eating establishments and, and just in the dead of night. And just, this is, these signs are coming down. And, you know, he was, you know, he went through um, a lot of unrest uh, as a result of that with people who were, you know, trying to say things that were pretty outrageous and, and, and ridiculous. But, you know, he, what he did was he didn't wait for some, some protocol or some politically correct process to, to put that into action. He just went and did it. He went and disrupted, he went and disrupted uh, the power brokers of the time and, and in the way he did it, it was like, well, there's no turning back now. We got no choice. Let's make the best of this. And, and yeah, Houston, the Houston we have today was shaped uh, in many ways by that. But I appreciate you think, you know, mentioning that timeline because the timeline was really critical. I mean, the fact that it was occurring there and, and Houston, I think, needs to be better known and better appreciated for that, that, that a lot of people, you know, give Texas a hard time for maybe being uh, a little bit vitriolic in, 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 certain, uh, in certain leanings that it has on a national stage. Uh, but you know, it, it's not really true of the entire state. And, and frankly, I think, again, there, there are people that uh, I think that the, the moderates of Texas are probably not well enough known and represented. And, and certainly the people who have who have moved the needle and, and set the, you know, set a standard that's much more um, exemplary than a lot of people realize. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Um, before we take a short break, I have a favor to ask of the audience. I would really appreciate it if they could subscribe, download, and review each episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies podcast. It helps us a lot. So thank you for considering doing that. When we come back, we're going to continue talking to Dead Man about owning your own story and having a circus in his family. We'll be right back in a moment. Make 1908 House of Wine and Ale your new favorite destination between San Antonio and New Braunfels. With 15 ales on tap, more than 30 craft beers in cans and bottles, and over 70 wines, we have a selection that's perfect for both relaxing with a glass or gathering with your friends. We even have wine on tap. That's right, we have wine on tap. www.1908houseofwine.com Family and animal friendly.
We're back with our guest, Jen Mann, the CEO of GoatNet and the grandson of Houston legend Roy Hoffines. So, Den, uh, many kids used to think that running away from home and joining the circus would be their best hope in life. It turns out your grandfather owned the Ringling Brothers Circus. And one of the things I read on your GoatNet website is that your childhood was a little bit chaotic at times, and you've touched on that a little bit. Did it ever feel like you didn't need to run away? You just sort of stayed home and yet still join a circus of a type? Well, there were places to hide. Uh, there was no doubt. <laughs> and I do remember the one time I, I, I tried to run away from home and saw, wanted to see if anybody would notice. And I went, I got into a closet and, and fell asleep in the closet and came out, I don't know, four hours later, whatever. And nobody, nice you know, nap. nobody, yeah, nobody knew what, what, what I, that I disappeared or anything like that. So let's just, let's, let's, let's tuck, let's tuck that one away for, for, for some sort of other therapeutic session. The, uh, the, I had a lot of places to go, a lot of things to see and that, the, you know, the book, all oh, the places you'll go, the Dr. Seuss book is, you know, kind of like, well, okay. Yeah. There were places that I went, I, you know, those are behind me. I, I did these things and it, it set this interesting, interesting wave of uh, variety of entertainment that I saw and, and I think it was really cool and helpful and phenomenal to have kind of this awestruck childhood where it, where it was that I was always pretty comfortable around people who were, you know, allegedly legends and, and larger than life. And I saw them as people first and to see them as people first and to have that perspective was pretty, pretty, um, influential and, and, um, and rewarding. And, but yeah, my grandfather was a person who was always enamored with the circus. And I think I remember though, that he put, he had clown makeup put on and my mom did too. And that freaked me out. Clowns are creepy. I, yeah. I was not as much of a fan of quote of the circus. I look, I wanted to be Gunther Gable Williams, who was, who was the, the tiger tamer. Now that was, a, that was a, you know, that I remember was, him. Yeah, that was kind of like you know the the uh, Burt Reynolds of the circus. You know, Burt Reynolds was a person that I looked up to. I remember when seeing the movie White Lightning. You know, guilty pleasure, little kid, twelve times in the movie theater there in Houston, and uh, White Lightning was this great movie. And so he was this this great guy. He went on to play like Hooper, the stunt man, and and then there's a guy, Jan Michael Vincent, I think, who played the world's greatest athlete and the uh, named Nanu. And I, Gunther Gable Williams struck me as kind of like a real life Nanu. He wasn't the character in the movie. He's this guy who's taming the tigers. I mean, this is a, this is a stud. But I also remember that Irving Feld, you know, who was one of the partners um, and the co-partner, co-founder, or whatever, co-co-purchaser of the circus, and the Feld family, pretty legendary in entertainment, and led to a lot of the things that happened in the Astrodome and helping to stage some pretty big time events. And there's always this Kevin Bacon game with events that happen in the dome and people that. You know, not, not only that I met at the time, but that I reconnected with and became, you know, lifelong friends with people who were older than me, but who were, who looked up to my grandfather, who were friends with him, and I related pretty well to them. One of those is Eddie Einhorn. Eddie was this great guy who helped really create March Badness by bringing the UCLA-Houston basketball game to, uh, to the Dome. And so they're great people like that. You bump into people all the time who either were connected to, like, Evil Knievel being in the Dome or A.J. Foyt being in the Dome or Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King being in the dome or some amazing concert with either Elvis or Frank Sinatra and so on. So you have places to like hide. I think I had not just places to hide, but I had 
uh, distractions to enjoy, you know, and those distractions were attractions. And so I just had this, this life of attractions. So, so while we didn't have a lot of channels to change in real life on the screen, we had, I had a lot of access to a lot of channels to observe because of the nature of the way my grandfather tried to, tried to entertain people. You know, he, his, his background was like, he, look, he started out by like putting on dances in Houston. He would throw dances, dances like you saw in It's a Wonderful Life like the school prom dance, he would, he would do these dances as like events. So when people go to Kirby ice house or they go to, you know, these different places of Cynthia Mitchell pavilion and all these other different assorted ways that people go now and enjoy themselves, go to the lake, et cetera. You know, he was just always hustling to try to figure that out. So he had this, this energy to like entertain people and this desire to do that. And, you know, frankly, it was driven some by some with some capitalistic instincts, but really it was, it was just to bring people together and create joy and so i you know i i got i got some of that some of that subliminal thought process <laughs> that's awesome all right so i want to switch gears a little bit let's get a little bit philosophical for a minute so philosophy is sort of my element i, I love philosophy so we're going to get a little bit philosophical so there's an intersection that i think most people reach probably when they're in their 40s um, sometimes it happens earlier sometimes later it happened much earlier for me because both of my parents and all four of my grandparents died by the time I was 25 years old. So um, that intersection that I'm talking about is where the will to survive and the admission that we will eventually die meet. So that's the crossroads. The will to live when a person admits to themselves that they are eventually going to die. Philosophically speaking, and without being cynical, um, do you think that our concept of legacy is a way to reconcile those dichotomies by, let's say, trying to live on forever through our offspring and communities? Yeah, I mean, that's a great it's a great thing to it's a great thing to bring up with everybody. I, I'm assuming you do that with all your guests, and and um, and I'm I'm happy to be a guinea pig in the early stages of, of dealing with this question. Uh, I, I've been driven by that my whole life, really. Um, you know, recognizing for whatever reason, recognizing that one life affects others and that if your life, if you can, if you can, you know, manage your own sort of offspring and try to lead them to do something great as well, and maybe do it by example, but can you really hit them over the head to lead them to do that by example? And maybe they're not all going to follow you. In fact, maybe strangers are more likely to follow you than your own family members. And when do you start realizing and thinking of, um, I've always been aware of, of the sort of the, the, the reality of longevity. And it might be because I lost my grandmother at a young age. My, my, my grandfather's first wife died before I turned three years old. And she was a lovely, amazing woman. And I, and I actually remember her. It's pretty, pretty strange to remember somebody that died when you're, you know, around, yeah. around two years old. Uh, but she was one of those types that she was that angelic kind of a presence. And, and I, you know, I've had a few other episodes in my life where I, I've, I've at least um, have some comfort that the, that the end that a lot of people think of as the end is not, and that there is a permanence to our existence and so the permanence to the existence allows me to take a deep breath and not really get too consumed with the fact that, you know, my physical, my, my, my physical uh, vessel isn't always going to be intact. And I'm okay with that. And I, I, at age 46, though, 
um, I suffered from uh, pancreatitis and I was in the hospital for 16 days. And for 12 days, I had no food. And the day that I was admitted, wow. I thought it might be over. And so I was, ter I was terrified. Um, I made a lot of changes as a, as a result of that with my diet and with my, with my um, physical routine. And, but it was because I had unfinished business. Uh, it was because I didn't, I didn't love who I was in that moment. Uh, and I, and I, and I wanted to, I wanted to appreciate myself even more. I wanted to feel better about who I was as a, as a, as a human being and what I was doing and why I was doing it. So, um, you know, you can let you get, let yourself get consumed with the noise, the negativity, um, improprieties, unfairness, a lot of things, right? You can just decide to, wow, this, this world is troubled. This world is problematic. This world is unproductive. These people hate each other. This is really, this is negative. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And instead, turn that around and say, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? And how can I also do better at basking in the things that I can control and not dwelling on the things that I can't? So, you know, I, I, that's a long way to answer this philosophical question. I'm doing the best I, do the best I can, but I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have four kids of my own. They're all different and I love them all the same. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, but it's something I think that, you know, I wish, I wish that, uh, I, not, not everybody is, uh, kids aren't for everybody. There are people who don't want to have kids. And by the way, that's just completely understandable. And therefore, and then there are people who like obsess over trying to have kids and they can't. So, you know, I never like to brag too much about kids in, in any direction, except to just say that, you know, I have four kids and they're all delightfully different and they're all really comfortable telling me anything. And they're all really honest about who they are and what they are. And, and, and they're all honest about their why. And I try like, try like crazy not to ever spoil any of them. Um, and I try to live by example. Like it's <laughs> one little silly anecdote. I got like movie posters all over the basement of my house. And they're all, they were all picked for a reason. You know, it was because this had people who were, who were brown and black. And this had a woman who was a really strong character. And this had, had humor and it made fun of a thing that was really important. And this had, you know, this had, uh, you know, a, a policeman who was, who was wrongfully accused of, of, of being part of the problem in the heat of the night is that poster. And so there's all of these different things that, that I have that I, I hope that sort of subliminally they do their jobs. I've never really wanted to be too preachy. And it really is how I go about telling stories as well. It's like, look, you know what? You need to decide for yourself whether you don't want to be the villain of that story. You need to decide for yourself whether you're inspired by this other person. And sometimes I'm sad because I don't think that, like I see people who are like pretty darn hateful who maybe we like a lot of the same movies, but we watch them in very different ways. And when I say hateful, I don't even mean that, that I hate them for being hateful. I just think we are products of our surroundings. And I wish that everyone took the responsibility better to like not try to hammer people over the head with embracing something that maybe they don't even fully believe. Yeah, and yet they're hammering somebody over the head with it. And so I just think we tend to, it's like business, you tend to get in, in front of a group, a team, people who work for you and with you who say, how did we do it last year? Let's just make it incrementally better. As opposed to how do we just do this in, a, in the greatest possible way? Um, I was talking to a friend at, at one of my kids' graduation parties. This is years ago. 
high school graduation party for my middle daughters who were twins. And it was about religion. And it was about how our kids question us about everything. Why are you giving me, you know, cheese? <laughs> why, why do we have, why do we have that tablecloth? What are you doing making that turn at that intersection? And yet on religion, it's like, Oh, I'm just, I am what my parents were. I don't think it happens as much right now, but it's happened for generations where people are like, oh, you know, okay, I was just told that this is the way it is and this is what it was. And, and there's like this draconian interpretation of, of some pocket of religion, of some kind of faith. And the kids generally, for, a lot, for several generations, were, they just were what their parents were. And I, I found that fascinating because they do question us about everything else and they don't even necessarily look up to their parents on, on all these different levels. And so... I'm not necessarily saying, you know, that I want you know everybody to just throw arrows at religions. I'm 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 a I'm a pretty faithful person, but but I tend to have a faith in in something that's um, a little Pollyannish, that I that I that I view religion as 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 uh, as love. You know, I view religion as 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 greatness. I look I look at people and are you a loving person or are you a great person? I'm down with that. I'm down with you loving person you're a great person i'm down with you you have some warts we all have warts you got you know if you got some some things that are a little bit defective in your point of view but you're a product of, of your surroundings and i am too so i tend to just, i've always been a little bit uh, a little bit obsessed with with that notion of uh i i love the notion of faith and i don't necessarily appreciate that people act like they know something when really they just believe something and it's okay to admit, I just believe it. I believe it and I hope for it. I, I agree with that. All right, so let's conclude with something a little bit lighter. So um, what's your favorite piece of memorabilia or memory from the Astrodome? Oh, wow. Uh, Melvin, I did, <laughs> it was, it was, I was, I was pretty uh, uh, high on the hog and, and I just come from the Red Sox winning the World Series and they were having an auction at the dome to get rid of some things. Um, I look, I've got some personal things that I got, you know, that were less, less, less uh, publicity oriented than this one. But this one, this, this, they had these space helmets that the grounds crew wore when they would vacuum the, the AstroTurf. And they had nine of them at this auction. And you could, you could bid, a price that would would sell would would be uh, sufficient for one of them, but then you, as the high bidder, would have the option to say you want more than one. I got all nine of them. I made a bid, wow. and they said, "How many do you want?" And I would, and I just I just blurted it out as I was like Dick Van Dyke at the dinner table, <laughs> you know, in an episode where he just you know is inclined to be a person to to, to pay the check. I bought all of them. Uh, so I have all of them and they're on, dis on display ab above this, uh, entertainment center in our family room. And my wife, my wife still, God bless her, wonders why, you know, um, <laughs> not shouldn't wonder why, but she's just kind of, mm, is that really the place? She, she knows you now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she does. And so, but I have all nine of those. I have nine of those. And so every time I see those, but that is, that's, you know, I've got an on-deck circle from the 2017 World Series that the Dodgers stood on for wow. their three games at Minute Maid Park. I've got a jock strap that 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 uh, Will Ferrell wore when he played for for 
10 teams in one day at spring training. That was not Astrodome, but that's another pretty, pretty awesome thing that's in a, that's in a frame. Awesome. It's enclosed. It's encased. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but my, my, uh, and he signed it and he signed it. You're welcome. Uh, so that was pretty, pretty amazing. And then, uh, but from the, you know, my granddad, I have like a fire chief hat that he had. I've got a mayor's badge that he had. And I, and I had to, I had to, I had to work to get those things because there were some complications with, with the estate. Um, and that's a whole nother story and a whole nother interview and a, another discussion about, you know, the nature of family and the nature of complications and, and, and bygones and assorted other elements. But, uh, those nine, those nine helmets that really represented, you know, Houston as the, the innovation capital of the world. So that's innovation, you know, to go with energy and, and, uh, that's you know that's what the Astros name really is about. It's about innovation. It's about aiming for the stars. That's awesome. That's I I know the helmets that you're talking about. Um, I wasn't there when the Astrodome opened. I was born the next year, but I've seen plenty of pictures. I grew up in Houston. I my first job was at the Astrodome when I was in high school. Oh, my first job after college you. was at the Astrodome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure we bumped into. We had to have bumped into each other somewhere. Probably somewhere, somehow. Uh, I was always in the press box when I was, my job in, in high school was as a press runner. Uh, was Jay for, Fred, so Jay Fred Duckett was doing the PA? Jay, Jay Fred Duckett was there. I, I often had to get ice cream for Jay Fred <laughs> in between innings. You could tell that he consumed, uh, he consumed a fair amount of it. Um, <laughs> um, you know, he, boy, was he wonderful. The way he said, Jose Cruz. Yeah, that, um, that created the legend. Oh, that, it did. The way his, he pronounced that created yeah. the legend. Yeah, it did. And he had, look, he pronounced them all pretty, pretty awesomely. Um, you know, he tried to make Phil Garner sound like a tough name. He tried to make, he made Billy Doran sound cuter than Billy Doran wanted to sound. And there was some, I mean, just some really neat, neat aspects behind the scene. I did a feature on Jay Fred when I, while I was at Baylor and I was, I was running the, the sports department of the paper at Baylor and came down and interviewed Nolan Ryan, interviewed Jay Fred Duckett did, you know, did a whole article just about him and, and being able to, to come up with those, those names and to create that energy that he did. So what a great time. What a, what a fun place to be. And there's so many people to whom, you know, I, I'm Rob Matwick, who's up at the Rangers now and, and has helped them with so many of their, their initiatives up there in Arlington and the footprints of them. I'm so proud of, of the legacy that he has and what he's done. Proud and proud of Bill Giles, what he went on to go do with the Phillies and, you know, legacies he's had and, and really to see Todd Callis back in Houston and, and, you know, his dad had a, had an early, early footprints in, in Houston and, and just so many great, amazing people that I've still been in contact with Jack Hyatt, who brought me a bat when I got a concussion and he and I just texted each other just last week. And he worried that I would, that I would be afraid of baseball and that I, or that I would be afraid of baseballs and that I would, would turn away from the sport because of the incident where I've been hit in the head with a baseball bat and so he hadn't really known. Well, not only Jack, not only did I not run away from the sport, I really leaned in, uh, despite the baseball bat to the head. So, well, we we won't go there. We won't no. say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're we're running short on time here. So I just want to wrap it up by, again, thanking you. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, you, know, you making the time to talk to me today. I know it's been a, a crazy day for you to travel. And so this has been a sacrifice for you to be here, and I truly appreciate it. So thank you for joining us. You're you're a dear person and a quality human being, and I, I want you to have the ultimate success with this uh, with this, like you have with your books. And and I and I hope we can. I know we'll stay connected, and I know that uh, 
our efforts will intersect and that, that GoatNet will benefit from, from your, your talent and capability and, and passion. I appreciate that, Dan. Join us again next time for a conversation with another great storyteller. We will be joined by the Negro Leagues Museum President Bob Kendrick to talk about the legacy of Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and those who paved the way for baseball to become America's favorite pastime for everyone. That's it for today's episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Thank you to our guest, Den Mann. I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope it leads everyone to consciously develop their legacy and own their own story. Until next time, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. To hear the latest stories by the most interesting storytellers, subscribe to this podcast. New episodes are released every Tuesday at 5 a.m. Central Time. That way, you can listen on your way to work or while you enjoy your second cup of coffee and decide if you really need that job. Also, please don't forget to rate each episode. That's real life and other fantasies on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.